From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A quick warning, we will be talking about suicide in this next segment. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. When Jeffrey Epstein died by suicide last month in a New York corrections facility, questions about the state of mental health care in America's prisons briefly dominated national headlines. But suicides in jails and prisons are becoming more and more commonplace, especially in Georgia. The state has one of the highest rates of inmate suicides in the nation, nearly double the national average. Atlanta-based freelance reporter Max Blau reported on these numbers for the Macon Telegraph. He spoke with state officials, family members, and dug into public records to learn more and joins me in the studio. Max, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So your reporting shows that su- the suicide rate in Georgia prisons is rising drastically with nearly 50 cases in the last three years, double the previous three-year period. After all the reporting you've done, can you help us better understand or summarize why there are so many inmate suicides in Georgia? When you look at the big picture in Georgia as well as elsewhere, one of the key things um, that prisons are grappling with is how to treat prisoners experiencing mental health um, conditions of all kinds. Um, Prisons, it should come as no surprise, are not the best places to treat people with any kind of sickness. Um, But yet, when people are incarcerated, they have the responsibility for caring for prisoners who are in their facilities. In terms of why suicide specifically, in some cases, it's related to staffing and, and issues related to the number of correctional officers in the correctional facility. Otherwise, it is related to solitary confinement and the degree to which people are being watched. And additionally, there's concerns related to the number of medical providers within correctional facilities and whether there are enough to adequately treat the mental health populations within Georgia's correctional facilities. So obviously a lot of factors. You found that half the state's prison suicides came from six facilities south of Macon, but they only house about a fifth of the state's prison population. So the same factors driving that high rate in southern Georgia? Absolutely. If you look at where Prisons are located typically. They are not always, some of them are located in cities, but many of them are located in places where there are broader employment struggles to recruit and retain workers. In addition, within those six facilities, there was one in particular, uh, Valdosta State Prison, that had the highest rate. I believe they have less than 5% of the overall population of Georgia Department of Corrections prisoners, yet they had around a fifth of the suicides that occurred. So there are some particular facilities that have faced the problem more than others. Yeah, Yeah. so 10 suicides there since 2017, last one just a couple of weeks ago. You, You talked about understaffing, overcrowding, also people not fully trained. But you quoted an inmate in the article who said a lack of empathy from staff. Obviously, that's coming from the prisoner side of things. Did you find more echoing that kind of sentiment? I did. And and after the first story I wrote for the Macon Telegraph came out, I spoke again with that inmate a couple of weeks later. This is six days after Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. And he told me the story of how his cellmate had expressed that he was suicidal, asked a guard for help, and the guard apathetically, or some ways mocking him, said, so am I. Hmm. He called his wife, who is a prison advocate. She called a supervisor. And despite assurances that they would check on him, no one came within the hours afterwards. And Mike, the the person you quoted, ultimately had to talk his cellmate away from the idea of committing suicide. No one came after that for several more days to check on him. Yeah. 
So we did reach out to the Georgia Department of Corrections for a statement on this. They said they have added a forensic psychologist to focus solely on suicide prevention and added additional psychiatrists at 22 state prisons. This is since 2018. Any data on how that kind of support affects suicide rates, maybe in other places? I asked them. I got the similar response from them, and I asked them for any follow-up info about how that works. My first reaction was that one forensic psychologist for a system of 50,000 people seems like not does not seem like a significant addition to what they are doing to prevent suicide. I was curious to hear their response to that, and I never heard back from them um, in regards to some of those questions. So when you talk to advocates here and elsewhere, more money and more resources is a start for hiring more mental health professionals, especially at a time when prisons are on the front lines of a mental health epidemic in this country. Right, but they're having difficulty getting regular staffing. How about finding mental health professionals? Exactly. Especially with Governor Campus asked state agencies, including the Department of Corrections, to cut between 4 and 6% of their budgets, 4% this year, 6 next year. What impact will those kind of cuts have on the well-being of these prisoners? It remains to be seen at this point in time. I, I have not seen anything specific to the Department of Corrections that's been reported yet on that front. However, anything related to staffing or mental health resources, um, if that gets cut, that will only exacerbate some of these issues. Max Blau is with me. He reported on prison suicides for the Macon Telegraph. The state has nearly double the national average of inmate suicides over the past three years. We're going to check back with him after hearing from our fall fund drive. I'm Virginia Prescott, reminding you that GPB is Georgia's only statewide public radio news network. So it's a service that can take us out of our busy lives and the bubbles we cannot help but live in and introduce you to the voices and lives of others. People or events you or I may never hear of otherwise. It's the kind of connection we're getting in this conversation today, and it's really only possible with independent journalism, free from commercial interests or free from clickbait journalism. We're asking you to support that during our fall fund drive. Here's how. We're back with more of On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, picking up our conversation on suicide in Georgia prisons with Max Blau. He's an Atlanta-based reporter who has looked into the rise of suicides over the past few years. The incidence among inmates in Georgia is nearly double the national average. As a reminder, as we discuss this sensitive topic, if you or someone you know is struggling, there is a lot of help available. You can call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. So, Max, as part of your reporting, you spoke to a number of families of those who had died by suicide in prison. You found that many struggled to find information after their loved one's death. How did they ultimately find out, and how long does it take for the news to reach them? In some cases, they find out, like the rest of us, which is a press release um, that comes out in the days after someone has died. And at that point in time, there's just a very small, maybe three or four paragraphs worth of information that says who died, what the suspected cause of death is. Wait, they find out when the public finds out? In some cases, yes. And in some cases, that's when they go then and ask for more information, they don't receive informa any, any additional information beyond what we know. So that's one of the frustrations I've heard from mothers that I've spoken with. They just want to know what happened. In many cases, it's still unclear at the initial announcement of a suicide whether or not it was in fact a suicide 
But an investigation is supposed to happen. And when other kinds of deaths happen with police or law enforcement officials on, on the outside of a prison, there's usually a, a process where you don't know for a while and right. then ultimately a case closes, a, a file is open, and you, you can obtain that. But in, in the case of Department of Corrections, that's, that's not something that happens or mothers have access to. There is a Supreme Court case, landmark case from 1976, Estelle v. Gamble, that established health care as a right for prisoners. Can you just talk us through that case and how it applies to health care and mental health care for inmate suicides today? Absolutely. So in the 1970s, there was a a Texas inmate who was working on a detail and a 600-pound cotton bale fell on him and injured his his back and his neck. Um, He was placed in solitary confinement and after requesting medical care and having it denied and refusing to work further. So he sued and that ultimately went up to the Supreme Court. He ultimately lost the case, but in that ruling, it set forward a principle known as deliberate indifference, which means that any medical correctional official who is aware of some kind of healthcare condition um, and, and need of treatment, if they have that knowledge that they can't deny further care and that they're required to under the Eighth Amendment. Over time, lawyers pushed for clear standards, but even to this day, decades later, there isn't a clear legislative or legal framework that outlines that at a federal or state level. So oftentimes the only course of correcting something that is wrong with suicides or other policies is through the courts, people suing in the same way um, Mr. Gamble did in the 70s. And a number of the families that you have spoken to have filed medical malpractice suits. So one of the people is Sheba Marie. She, Her son, Caleb Mitchell, died by suicide in Valdosta State Prison. What, what's the story she told you? She told me she had received a letter from her son that suggested he was going to end his life. She called the prison, uh, this is at Valdosta State Prison, to find out what was going on and what was being done about it. She was assured that they were watching him. He was in solitary confinement at that time. And a few days later, he ended his life. And what she is suing now over is the fact that there was an unreasonable delay related to her flagging of that and his expressing of his of his suicidal intentions, and then the actual death happening, that there wasn't enough done in that period. So she's she's suing now? Yeah, she's currently suing, and I believe she's being represented by the ACLU. Well, you mentioned solitary a couple of times. What's the relationship or the incidence of suicide in solitary confinement compared to general population? Typically, it's, it's significantly higher, and this is something that came up with the Epstein case as well, mm-hmm. um, where... When you are in solitary confinement, there's typically a policy that requires a check to be done every 15 minutes. In reality, that doesn't always happen, and that's a consequence of understaffing or the apathy that we had talked about earlier. But by having 15-minute checks or constant monitoring in some jails or prisons is something that also happens. There are ways to prevent you know, a two-hour period from passing in some cases that someone who is suicidal is just left unattended and can potentially end their life. Mm. What can we expect to see with the lawsuits like Sheba's going forward? Oftentimes in those cases, whether it's it's under a deliberate indifference claim or medical malpractice, it, it is incredibly hard to prove that something went wrong, but it is the only way to ensure that future changes happen at this point in time. There are other things states have done elsewhere where Colorado ended the use of long-term solitary confinement a few years ago, where there's a maximum a cap placed on how long you can stay in solitary confinement. 
in addition to solitary confinement, there's also um, other tools like some jails are requiring guards to carry like a electronic fob that tracks a correctional officer going through a facility to make sure they're actually doing the job mm-hmm. instead of manually logging it, which... Which we saw in the Epstein case exactly. could be fudged. Right, right. You just mentioned Colorado, but of course there are other states facing a rise in prison inmate suicides. Do you have any examples or models from other states in addition to Colorado that can be used to help prevent this problem? I spoke with a sheriff of a jail uh, about 120 miles north of San Francisco who was telling me about a a lawsuit that happened there after a a suicide took place um, and they had to pay out, I think it was about $2 million dollars. And afterwards, he implemented a few things. First was anything inside of a cell that could be turned into some kind of noose or other device that was um, could be used to self-harm. They replaced it with different kinds of material. For instance, um, some inmates will use sheets or blankets to fashion a noose. And instead of having things that could rip easily, there were tear-resistant blankets put into place. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one specific thing within the cell. On the outside, there's additional training that happened. Uh, I spoke with one criminal justice expert who suggested that instead of a correctional officer getting a one-time training or once every 10 years, she pointed to people who are trained to do CPR that have to go through a recertification every three years. Mm -hmm. And if there was continuous ongoing training, not just for new staffers, but also ones who are veterans, people would be put in the position to consider suicide prevention as a key portion of their jobs and to be trained to do so. Max Blau, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Thank you for having me. Max Blau, he's been looking into Georgia's rising rate of inmate suicides in state prisons. He wrote about it for the Macon Telegraph and for Stateline, something he's going to keep on. And you can read a link to his full reporting at gpbnews.org. We're taking a quick break here to remind you that it is your support that makes On Second Thought and everything that you hear on GPB possible. Right now, during our fall fund drive, it's your opportunity to do your part. The amount, that is up to you. What counts most is that we hear from you. Here's how you can help out. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Zora Neale Hurston's novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, is a staple on high school and college reading lists. Published in 1937, it could have easily disappeared into obscurity, but for a young Georgia writer named Alice Walker. A decade before winning the Pulitzer Prize, Walker made a pilgrimage to South Florida to find more about Hurston's life. Her essay about discovering Hurston's unmarked grave in an overgrown cemetery helped revive interest in the author, anthropologist, and folklorist who spent her final years in poverty. What happened to one of the leading lights of the Harlem Renaissance movement? Well, Michael Adnow wrote about following her ghostly trail for The Bitter Southerner this week, and he's joining me via Skype from Florida, where he is a writer and photographer. Michael, great to speak with you. It's great to be back, Virginia. You found a number of myths circulating around the life of Zora Neale Hurston, some of her own making. Like what? Well, I think the most prominent one was that uh, everyone believed that she was born in 1901. Some people had it as 1902. And so throughout her life, there was a lot of debate about even when she died, she died in 1960. People weren't sure what age she was because she would tell people different ages. And then the other big myth was that she was born in Edenville, Florida, which turned out not to be true. And that was discovered 
you know, long after her death. So the kind of the seminal biography that was written of her by Robert Hemingway in 1977, that, you know, all those myths were there. So they were kind of galvanized by biographers and writers and, you know, everyone who knew her. And she wrote herself about I Get Born in in her book. But, you know, this is part of the nature of myths is embedded in the work that she was doing. She was gathering folk tales and songs handed down through oral traditions. So were her myths about herself in service to a better story? Or do you think something bigger was operating for her? When you when you look at the span of her career, the things that she covered as a reporter, as a novelist, as a folklorist, as an anthropologist, what you see is that there was this emphasis on storytelling and it wasn't so much lying. It was, you know, that these folk tales were in service of something bigger. And so I think that in her own personal case, it was, you know, to kind of circumvent or mitigate any kind of prejudice against her, uh, whether she was a little bit older, because by the time she had, you know, actually finished high school, I mean, she was in, she was in her twenties. And so, there were ways that it just served her in a really pragmatic way. And then also, I just think for the sake of telling good stories, I mean, she would tell little fibs and things. And ultimately, when you kind of lay it out, they were in service of some greater, bigger truth, something that we wouldn't otherwise know. The old never get let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. <laughs> well, Zora, of course, was a protege of Franz Boas, who was a famous um, instrumental anthropologist, friends with Langston Hughes, County Cullen, Alan Lomax, a folklorist himself, a great cultural and intellectual light. But then by 1961, her books are out of print, some never published. After her death, her friend Fanny Hurst wrote, she lived carelessly, at least at the time I knew her, and her zest for life was cruelly at odds with her lonely death. Do you, after looking at so many aspects of her life and the people who wrote biographies about her, think she played a role in extinguishing her own light? I don't think so. I think um, it's such a complicated question, but the best way that I've heard it put was by Kevin Young, the poet, and he's also the poetry editor at The New Yorker and the director of the Schomburg Center. Former Atlantan, by the way. Yes, yes, yes. And he was telling me the way that he put it, he said, you know, not everyone survived the good times. And I think that Hurston was just too complicated of a figure. I mean, she just didn't fit the mold. You know, she was this, you know, this black female Southerner. She was a part of the Talented 10th and a part of the Harlem Renaissance. But the kind of new Negro movement was not in line with where she was headed. And I mean, she was just... She was too much herself to be a part of that. She was, she didn't fit the mold. She was, you know, this um, kind of staunch conservative. You know, she had come out against Brown versus the Board of Education, which she was kind of, you know, loathed for. And, you know, people saw that as reprehensible and kind of damaging to the, this kind of black movement during her lifetime. It, it made it more challenging, maybe than, you know, kind of showing your teeth and playing nice. How do you understand her opposition to Brown v. Vortived? Other inte black intellectuals of the time, James Baldwin among them, opposed it. Or And this is what some people, as you mentioned, found reprehensible about her. What was the nature of her opposition? I think that what people don't understand, and especially when you have critics of this, is that the South was very different. I mean, in the South, there were black communities had, that had totally formed around themselves, you know, like um, it, all over Florida, all over Georgia, all over Alabama, um, you know, 
people were afraid that those communities would dissolve with with desegregation and what you saw is that they they in fact did i mm-hmm. mean like they lost so much of course yeah we were you know there was this integration of schools and people were able to go to you know um, you know white colleges and so on and so forth but I think that for Hurston, who grew up in one of the first incorporated black towns in the entire country, I mean, this was a town where everyone was black. And it wasn't just the black part of a white town. It was a black town. And there was a, you know, immense, immense, like, source of pride there because that was a town that had formed in in the 19th century. And so people there had owned land for you know, very long time. Um, there was the roots ran really deep there. And so for her, she could see that there would be this harm done if it was if it was done hastily, which in a lot of cases it was. We're going to take a quick break and be back with Michael Adno. His feature on Zora Neale Hurston is available today at The Bitter Southerner. And we'll leave you with the voice of Zora Neale Hurston herself singing. Can't you lie in it? Oh, shackle, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a. <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, can't you try? You're listening to On Second Thought on listener-supported GPB, and that means your financial support right now really makes a big difference in our ability to provide smart and relevant programs on the air for you and the entire Georgia and surrounding region community every single day. I'm Virginia Prescott, reminding you that our Fall Fund Drive is in progress. So if we haven't yet heard from you, this is a great time to join, maybe for the first time, to renew your support, or even to become a GPB sustainer with a monthly contribution. Here's how. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Alice Walker to Toni Morrison, generations of African-American female writers and others have learned from author and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. We're continuing our conversation with Michael Adnow. He's been following the life of Zora Neale Hurston, not always a straight path, and his feature on The Writer is now available on The Bitter Southerner. So, Michael, when Zora Neale Hurston died, she was broke. She had had a benefactor early on. She attended a few colleges. She won Guggenheim fellowships, big prestigious awards, wrote novels, was a columnist. But in the end, she owed money to the hospital, uh, the home where she was convalescing after a stroke. How and why did she die in such an obscure state? She never garnered much money. I mean, her advances were much lower than that of, you know, her contemporaries and her peers. So she moves to Fort Pierce, Florida, which is, it's about 120 miles north of Miami on the East Coast. And um, she moved there in 1957. She was invited there by uh, the editor of the Fort Pierce Chronicle, and she was going to start a column there. And so when she moved there, she had started working for this newspaper and at this point, she's been working on this book, Herod the Great, this manuscript for this book for for quite a while. And, you know, she's just living check to check. And she had been for quite some time. At that point, though, she's also working as a substitute teacher. And, you know, her health is failing. So by, you know, two years later in 1959, she suffers her first stroke and um, that's where she's kind of forced to apply for wel- welfare and then sent from the hospital to this 
this nursing home. She would just kind of work odd jobs throughout her life as a maid, as a librarian, as a substitute teacher, um, as an assistant, a secretary, and she would write almost every day. But um, the work that we know and think of as so important was not work that she garnered much money or could make a living from. I mean, when she had a Guggenheim fellowship, she was able to live and work as she might have liked. But otherwise, it was, you know, slim pickings. Yeah, she was buried in Fort Pierce in the end. I think it's safe to say that without Ellis Walker, many of us would not know who Zora Hurston is. And, and, and you followed Walker's pilgrimage that led to the revived interest, the publication of books like And Their Eyes Were Washing God. Uh, as you point out, now she's on mugs and magnets. So, And there's an annual festival, a Zora festival in Eatonville, Florida. So finally, this town is owning, uh, on some level, one of its great residents but there have also been, you mentioned the biographies, Robert Hemingway in 77, Deborah Plant later, and here in Georgia, the writer and professor Valerie Boyd, who wrote Wrapped in Rainbows about Hurston while she was still working in the AJC. So what what was she wanting to add to Hurston's story? And, and what are people like you wanting to add to that? You know, I find it really difficult to articulate, but it was very inspiring to see how without Alice Walker, we would not know this person's work. And without Knowing Zora Neale Hurston's work, I, I think that the world would be lesser for it. And I think a lot of writers would be lesser for it. I mean, I think she really forged this path. And so Walker kind of leading to the resurgence of her and then Hemingway kind of galvanizing that ascension was was phenomenal. But as Valerie Boyd tells the story, you know, she had she had gone to the inaugural Zora Festival in Eatonville in 1989. But then at the fifth Zora Festival, she saw Robert Hemingway speak and he was criticizing his own biography. I mean, he was saying that he, he believed that he had missed things. And, and, you know, the main reason for that was that he was a white American writing about a black American, a man writing about a woman. And as she remembers, he said, it's time for a new biography to be written and it needs to be written by a black woman. Boyd, who was in the audience, was kind of I don't know. She she felt afraid to take something like that on. And then, you know, two years later, she gets a call from a literary agent kind of seeking out if anyone if she would be interested in writing this biography of Hurston. And then, um, you know, she kind of sets to it from there and starts figuring it out and looking at the holes in Hemingway's biography and working with him and looking over his notes and seeing who and who he didn't interview. And then she sets to it. And when that book comes out in 2003, I mean, it becomes the definitive biography of Zora Hurston. I mean, there's so many things that were undiscovered until Boyd set to that path. And then Deborah Plant, you know, years later comes along and knows that there is this definitive biography. But as she would put it, she wrote this kind of spiritual biography of Hurston. So covering different ground, but, you know, it's almost like where Boyd's biography ends, Plant's begins. And, you know, Boyd's biography really does end with her death. And Plant's kind of begins there. And all these people, I mean, it's like this kind of metaphorical chain. And they're kind of a speaking across generations and to each other. And, you know, they're of different ages and from different places. And it's very interesting to see that, that kind of patchwork and how all those things are connected and where they kind of touch each other, where they press up against each other. And for me, it's just, uh, it's was an honor to just learn about that and to hear those stories. I mean, to hear of Alice Walker's pilgrimage, you know, 
40 some years ago to hear of Valerie Boyd's experience writing the book, uh, to hear the experience of Deborah Plant editing, you know, this manuscript that was 80 years old that belonged to Hurston, which is now Barracoon. Um, and so for me, that was just a total pleasure. I was just so grateful to listen. And the story is still great, even though it's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Michael Adno, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Michael Adnow's new feature on Zora Neale Hurston is available at The Bitter Southerner. And we're going to leave you with Zora Neale Hurston herself. Here she is singing a folk song. But this will bring you back. Thank you for spending some time with On Second Thought. You rely on the information that all the programs on GPB provide to deepen your understanding of our region, our culture, and our world. I'm Virginia Prescott, asking you to join with other listeners around the state and beyond to help cover the costs of everything that you get here on GPB. That's really how public radio works, and that's what our fall fun drive is all about. Our doors are wide open, and we invite you to be the next listener who joins the GPB family right now while you're listening and while you're thinking about it. Here's how.